Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. We're going to have two readings this evening. The first reading is from um, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 31 to 39 of Romans chapter 8. They're very famous verses. Um, but during them, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 44 that we'll be looking at in more detail later. Romans chapter 8, that's page 944, or the large print, that's page 1,123. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Uh, Psalm 44, that's page 470. In the large print, that's page 553. Uh, If you weren't with us last week, we're just um, in a series on the psalms written by the sons of Korah. Uh, We're not sure who those uh, sons were, uh, but they were involved uh, most likely in temple worship. And here we come to Psalm 44. Uh, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Oh God. We have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. 
For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we'd forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Amen. Now, I can't, I can't quite believe I'm going to tell you this, but I, I have the habit of sleep talking and even sleepwalking a little bit. Um, I've woken up, sat at the end of my bed. I've woken up uh, walking out of the room even mid-conversation with Mary. And that, that moment of waking up is a really, really strange moment, if you've never experienced it. It is so weird. It's extremely disorientating. There's this utter confusion. What is real? Uh, what is not? Uh, you, you thought you were doing one thing, and then suddenly reality is a very different thing. It's a complete kind of clash in your head. Uh, one truth uh, doesn't fit with another, and your brain has to kind of slowly, uh, sleepily uh, work it all out. Um, and that there's something, there's something of that, and in our experience as Christians too. Now, sometimes as we live, our lives just do fit together. Okay? Our understanding of who God is and the, the lives we're living, it kind of matches up. But then come moments that throw us. That clash, that moment when things don't fit, the boat is rocked. Often they're moments of intense pain and suffering because what we know of God and what we're experiencing just don't seem to fit together. They're like trying to fit two, two pieces from different jigsaw puzzles together at times, it can feel. We, we can feel utterly confused. But the different to sleepwalking, it's relational. 
It's between us and God, and so it feels personal. It hurts. And it's that kind of moment that the psalmist who wrote Psalm 44 and the congregation who are singing it is in. And in the pain and confusion, God in his grace is giving us this song. He's giving us words to sing, to help us. He doesn't necessarily give us answers, but he definitely gives us a way forward and words in the midst of it all to help us piece it all together. So whether this is your present reality at the moment, finding that the world and God that you know are at utter odds, or or whether it isn't, let's open up this song together so we might sing it afresh to God because at some point we're going to need it. But what, what sets up the struggle of this psalm is the way it begins. Turn back to Psalm 44. Because it's the beginning of great confidence. It's a confidence that affirms who we know God to be. And first, first the song and we sing of our trust in our triumphing God. That's verses 1 to 8. Our trust in our triumphing God. The psalm first lifts up the nature of our God. He is a God of victory. He triumphs. He wins. Now in the Old Testament, when this was written, this was clearly seen in how God secured the land of Israel for his people. Verse 1, it says, God did it in the days of old and did what? Verse 2, you with your own hand drove out the nations. That's the victory after victory of Joshua, of, uh, under Joshua of God's people conquering the land. And for the writer of the psalm, God's people had seen it in their lifetime. Now, we don't know quite when it was, but verse 5, through you, we pushed down our foes. Verse 7, but you have saved us from our foes. They, they had fought against warring nations and they had won. They'd both heard of it and they'd seen that God is a God who triumphs. Um, and of course, God's people are involved. They were the ones fighting on the ground, but it's, it's clearly God who's achieved it. Uh, verse 3, for not by their own sword did they win the land, uh, nor uh, did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It was all God. He's a triumphing God. Just to illustrate this, back at, at uni, I, I played in a rugby sevens tournament, played with um, uh, between different uni colleges. And in this tournament, people who played at the top uni side were allowed to compete uh, for their college. And we had a guy called Big Dave on our team. Uh, now, Big Dave, uh, he was not only big, but he was also phenomenally quick. Um, he, he played on the wing for the uni team. Okay? And this was a team that had beaten Spain's international side. And the opposite teams just did not stand a chance. And we won that tournament. Now, I played rugby that day, as did the rest of the squad. And we could say, we won. But really, Dave won. Uh, it, was, it was his victory. Uh, it was him who would catch the ball at one end of the pitch, evade every tackle and score at the other end. He won it. And it's the same with triumphs of God's people. They were God's victories. Yes, his people were involved. But the victories are his. He's a triumphing God. That's what he does. He wins. Enemies don't stand a chance. And as I said, back in the Old Testament, God demonstrated his his winning ways, especially on the battlefield. 
He had promised his people a place of safety, a kingdom of peace, a shadow of the new creation to come. And they would have to literally fight sword against shield for that to be a reality. Now today, since Jesus has has come, we don't fight for a land in the same kind of way, but our God is still a God who's bringing about a kingdom. And he's still a God who wins. He still triumphs. His king is in heaven. His gospel is being proclaimed. People are coming to know Jesus. They're being brought, in Paul's words, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Sins are being defeated in people's lives. The devil is being humiliated and he will one day finally bring about a new creation where sin and death are utterly defeated. God is a triumphing God and so we trust in him. We trust in him. Now throughout this psalm, you may have noticed as we read it, there's a little interplay between the writer that and the rest of the congregation, between the the leader and the people. During the psalm, it speaks of I, and then speaks with we. That's important as we go through it, and you'll see. But we see it here in verses 4 to 8. Verse 4, you are my king. And then verse 5, through you we push. Then verse 6, for not in my bow do I trust. Verse 7, but you have saved us. It's going between the two. There's a leader of God's people, a representative, and then there's the rest of God's people. So he sings of his trust in God, and then we join in and affirm it. Then back to him, and then we sing with him. And prophetically, this is surely pointing forward to our true worship leader, our true representative, Jesus himself leading us in song. Just as he trusts God perfectly, so by his spirit do we join in and trust God too. So God is the God of triumph. We trust him. With Jesus, we we join in and say, you are my king. In you, in you we've boasted continually. And we'll give thanks to your name forever. Our trust in our triumphing God's. And this is the attitude that sits under the psalm. With all the confusion and the mess we're about to get to, God's people, led by their king, are those who know God wins and puts their trust in him. Now this is the opposite of our society at the moment. We are living in a world where the self is king, where the self wins. I heard recently of some primary school kids who just recently wanted to make a bit of a movie just on their home tablet and because of all they'd been taught at school they said quite openly that the message of the movie they wanted to create was be confident and trust in yourself. That's a movie they wanted to make. This is the message they've been hearing again and again at school. It's the opposite of this psalm. Verse 6 would have to be sung... I trust in my bow and my sword to save me. We've saved ourselves from our foes. My hard work, my strength, my resilience, my money, my dreams. And as a church, the same. We can trust in what we do. We trust in our techniques, our slick sophistication, our wealth, our training, our pedigree, our our social media and internet presence. That's where success lies. That's how God's kingdom wins. Who do we trust? Me. But no, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Christ's strength, we trust in our triumphing God. Any victory, every victory, 
belongs to him. He takes the glory. And we rightly point to him. He, he graciously uses us. Like Big Dave passing me the rugby ball. But it's all him in the end. We trust in our triumphing God. But with all that said, life for the Israelites did not fit with it. Instead, they sung of something very different. They sung of, uh, and we sing, of our disorientating defeat. Disorientating defeat. That's verses 9 to 22. The words of verse 9 just jar in this psalm, don't they? Like someone starts playing a funeral march at a wedding feast. You may have felt it as we sung them, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have taken spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the the nations. It's a brutal few verses. God might be a God of victory, but not here, not now, not for us. Right now, we are utterly under the cosh. We've been defeated, they're singing. The people of God have come up against enemies and they've been routed. They're running in fear. They're looted and left for dead. They're like weak, bleating lambs encircled by a pack of vicious wolves. And any left alive are then sold into slavery. The contrast is stark, isn't it? It's from them pushing down foes and treading down enemies And now they lie under their enemy's boot. They are the ones slaughtered, scattered and sold. And this is an experience of utter shame. They are taunted, scorned, laughed at, mocked. They're in such a pitiful state. They're even used in in slang as a byword, as a joke. Instead of victory, it's death and defeat. Instead of glory, it's shame and disgrace. Now, we don't know the exact events that led to this, but we can imagine them. You know, enough is given here to know that a foreign army of some sort has marched through their towns, leaving devastation in their wake. You can hear the screams of grieving widows. You can smell the the smoke of burning houses. See the blood of innocent children staining the soil. This is a defeat and a disgrace. Experienced not only by all the people, but also their leader. Again, verse 15, it goes back to, I, all day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. This is everyone. And here comes the utter pain of it all. Verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe. Just look at the beginning of all these verses. You, 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 it's all from you, God. If victory comes from you, God, then defeat must do too. If you don't choose to save us, if you don't choose to bring rescue, then this is all in your hands. This defeat is at your hands. You are the one who's made it happen. God's people know the deep truth of God's sovereignty. He's the God of creation, the God of his people, the God of victory and of power. Then their demise, their defeat was utterly in his control. But but is this an act of justice from God? Often in the Old Testament, God acts in response to people's sin. You know, when they reject him, he brings a hand of punishment through foreign nations. He did it through Assyria. He did it through Babylon. Is this what's going on here? Because if that's the case, there's something more understandable about it, isn't there? It's kind of cause and effect. We sinned, 
So God punishes us. And, uh, and, and in the end, we, we, we come to God for forgiveness. But God's people sing very differently here. Instead, they lay out their innocence in it all. And they couldn't be clearer. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. I don't think this is an appeal for for sinlessness. But what it is, is an appeal of covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Yes, they might have sinned for sure, but not in a way that deserved this from God. No, God's, God's people, they haven't broken the covenant. They're still trusting, trusting in their God. Their hearts are still turned towards him. They're worshipping him in spirit and truth. And this is the utterly disorientating nature of it all. There's this conflict of reality going on. Like I said at the beginning, waking up sleepwalking, or like being in a city completely lost. You know, you've gone what you thought was the right way, and yet it's all wrong. You're not where you thought you should be. You find yourself, I don't know, in a town square that is completely wrong, and as you you gaze up at the buildings, it's a, a disorientating dizziness sets in. What was right hasn't ended right. That's what it feels like is going on here. God is a God of victory, yes. God is good, yes. God cares for his people, yes. And we've been faithful, yes. But, but somehow we're in shame and defeat. No, this, this isn't right. Something doesn't fit. Something isn't working. It's an utterly spiritually disorientating defeat. If it's from God, but it's not for breaking the covenant, then what's going on? God of victory is doing the exact opposite of what they expect. To, to use a, a phrase I used on Easter Sunday, rather than life bursting out of death, it feels as if death is bursting out of life. This is the whole congregation of Israel down on their knees before God lamenting. Loads of the Psalms are like this. Here, trying to deal with this disorientation, this pain. Lament. A guy um, called Mark Rogop, he writes an excellent book on lament. He puts it like this. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. That's what this psalm is. God's people in the midst of staggering pain and suffering not knowing why it's happening and just putting it before God. Isn't this the experience of much of the church? Paul quotes, as I said earlier, this psalm in Romans 8, and he speaks of different experiences of, of tribulation, of distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of being afflicted, confused, persecuted, struck down. Right now, Open Doors estimates 360 million Christians across this world are facing persecution or discrimination. Christians across Afghanistan are facing imprisonment and death. Just a few years ago, our brothers and sisters in Grace Church Larbert were hounded and persecuted. Their minister was targeted by a hate campaign. All they wanted was a building and the world turned against them. Death, death and defeat rises on all sides. 
You know, the church shrinks. It looks as if the world and the devil have the upper hand. The church across our world knows what it is to sing. We are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The pain, the tears, our disorientating defeat. This is a corporate prayer. It's an experience of the church together, us. But perhaps also it's a familiar feeling for you personally. Whether in the past or right now, your, perhaps your life situation just feels like it's collapsed inward like Job. You're sat in the ashes of your life, being left hurt and bewildered. Grief in the face of loss, pain. Whether physical or emotional, it rips through us. And that, that word, why? That word, why, just spills out from our lips like it does in this psalm. It, it bursts out through the tears, why, God's? You are the God of victory and yet I'm in the rubble of defeat. Where are you, God, we cry? Perhaps this isn't where you are right now, but it might be in the future. And if it is, like this psalm, present your experience, your pain, your confusion before God. It's right to do this. It's right to speak with raw honesty before God. He wants us to to lay it all before him, to keep coming to him somehow in it all. Now, not, not to turn against him in bitter anger, turning our pain uh, into hate, nor on the other side, the other end of the spectrum, to deny the pain, to sugarcoat it, to just put a fake smile on it all. No, it's to bring it all at his feet, warts and all, to put our disorientating defeat before him. But then what? As we trust, trust in our triumphing God, as we experience this kind of defeat, well, what next? Well, lastly, we sing our pleading prayer. It's verses 23 to 26, our pleading prayer. The psalmist doesn't stop there. He, he doesn't leave reality smashed and broken on the floor. No, he turns to God and he pleads with him. He pleads and cries to him to act. Verse 23, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Verse 26, Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. God wants us to plead with him, to cry to him, to act, to call on him, to remember his promises. As we come to experience defeat, perhaps, perhaps as a church, Perhaps experiencing the pressures of conforming to our society. Perhaps in time, I don't know, experiencing declining numbers. Or, or perhaps as we hear the terror and fear of our brothers and sisters, uh, uh, what they're facing across the world. What do we do? We pray to God to act. We plead urgently. We call out in the midst of tears, God, remember your covenant. You have promised a new creation. You have promised the vindication of your people. Be victorious again. Arise. Act. But why should we pray? What's the point? If this is our experience, why do we bother? We can do it because we know that we as God's people are living somehow in the arms of his love. Verse 26, right at the end. Redeem us for the sake of your stead 
steadfast love. What an extraordinary way to finish the psalm. Even in the midst of it all, they know of God's love, his steadfast love. And there are glimpses, glimpses, just glimpses of that love in this psalm. Just notice again verses 15 and 16. It's coming, it comes right at the end of this experience of defeat, but just see, it's back to the singular. I, all day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. The, the leader of the congregation, the representative in it all, he is facing the pain and disgrace. And oh, doesn't this point to our true representative, Jesus Christ, the utterly loyal one, the one who is always faithful to the covenant. He never turned back or aside, and yet he suffered deep affliction and pain. He walked a life of humiliation. The eternal Son of God, living as a human being and headed to the ultimate disgrace and pain of the cross. So as he sings Psalm 44, as he speaks of defeat and disgrace he faced, we somehow see his love in his company. This is a path he walked. This is a path walked by the one who loves me and died for me. This is a path of suffering that then we now walk as we take up our cross and we share in his sufferings. We, we don't walk with him to pay for sin like he did. Instead, we walk with him experiencing the world he experienced, this world tainted by sin and death. So in, in the depths of this, the pain, we have company. We're not alone. Like a friend by your side as you, you struggle up a long mountain path. Like a companion sitting beside you, holding your hand in a hospital bed. Christ is our loving company. That's one glimpse of God's love. There's also a little glimpse as he points us to a bigger purpose. It's there in verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. Now we could sing this, it's for your sake, it's your fault God. We hate it, we resent it. Or we could start to see, for your sake, there's something else going on. There's something bigger. Since our pain is not for our sins, God starts to show us there's something else at play. It's for my sake, God says. I have a bigger scheme. You trust I am good, well, keep trusting. There's something bigger going on. I truly am a God of victory. I will bring about redemption and life. I will end this. What that means is even, even in the depths of the pain, it is never completely meaningless. Even though it may feel like it, even though we can't see any way out or any good or use, it is for God's sake. It is for His purposes and glory. We don't see it, but He does. And as we sing this, we start to see His love and slowly, rather than Perhaps resenting the pain, we, we slowly step forward, willingly. Your will be done, God, we pray. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. One commentator has put it really helpfully. He said, this psalm teaches us the revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. See that our suffering, your suffering, maybe a battle scar rather than a punishment. It's glimpses of God's love. It's for a greater purpose. And 
It's these glimpses of his love that mean God's people can plead in prayer to him to remember, to act on that love. But, but more than that, this whole psalm pours out from knowing God's love through what he has done. That's how the psalm began. Do you remember what God did in the past for them and their forefathers? But we have a greater moment to look back on to know God's love. We don't just look back on wars in Israel. We look back on Jesus, our Savior. We look back on his love for us as he walked to Calvary. As he was nailed to that wooden beam, as darkness hung in the sky, as he was forsaken, disarming the powers and authorities in the heavenly places. And as we look back on his love, we see also his glorious resurrection victory. As he rose from the grave, swallowing up death and defeat, calming the great storm with his power, dissipating the darkness with his light. That's why Paul could speak with such confidence in Romans 8. Quoting this psalm, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, quoting Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even in the pain, Paul knew of his security in Christ's love. And it's in, it's in that context, it's in those arms of love and victory that we plead in prayer. If we are in Christ, if we're with him, united to him, even, even in the disorientation of defeat, in the pain of our experience, we know we're securing God's steadfast love. We, we know God is for us. So we plead to him. It's, Like asking a loving parent for help, we know he's going to help. So rather than running from him, we plead with him. We get on our knees and say, God, we've heard with our ears and what our fathers have told us. We have heard of you raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And yet we are in defeat. We are in pain and disgrace. So we plead, rouse yourself. May Christ come back. So he might complete the victory. Arise God. Send Jesus back to take away this pain and this suffering. This defeat and disgrace. Vindicate your people. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You are for us so we plead to you. When the church is on her knees. When persecution comes at every opening. When the pain and despair is too great to know what to do. God gives us words. He helps us pray. This psalm, it's a psalm of trust. That's where we started in verses 1 to to 8. And if that trust infuses us, then we'll begin to pray like this psalm. In view of his love through his son, we sing our pleading prayer. And by it, he leads us. In his grace, step by step, in the defeat, through it in trust of him who loves us and redeems us in Christ. He, he helps us to, to hold on to his promises, especially when rejoicing and happiness are far from us and to look forward to a day when we will rejoice with him again.
when Christ returns. Amen.